This is Baffled with David DeRoche, and this is the first episode of our second season, and this one's called The Eight Things We Should Be Thinking About as the War in Ukraine Rages On. Since Russia invaded Ukraine, I've cried I don't know how many times as I listen to stories from the front lines, men staying behind to fight, a former cook's now leading a makeshift Molotov cocktail factory in an abandoned building, wives and daughters being forced to leave their husbands and fathers, teenage boys having to decide whether to stay and fight with their dads or seek refuge in another country with their moms, schools being destroyed, life is upside down. But... Here's the thing about this war. It's been happening for eight years. The only difference is that now Russian soldiers and military equipment are rolling onto Ukrainian soil, whereas before it was Russian-backed separatists fighting in eastern Ukraine. For some reason, this feels different though, right? I mean, beyond the actual sight of Russian tanks lumbering into Ukraine, it just feels worse, more, more violent. And it certainly is if you look at the casualties and the number of those displaced. But I wonder, as I tend to do, is our coverage of this war, our collective coverage as journalists, missing something? Is our coverage missing something important? And as a corollary to that, is war coverage so important that everything else must take a back seat? Now, wars are probably the most complicated thing on planet Earth to cover accurately and fairly as a journalist. Now, I've never been a war correspondent. I can only imagine what it's like trying to get the full story trying to avoid being pulled into a hero-villain narrative or being told by intelligence agencies incredibly juicy information that's impossible to validate but easy to verify, as long as you're verifying with sources on the same side. Official information during a time of war should always be taken with a sizable amount of salt. Think about what White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said in late February after the invasion. Here she is speaking on the ABC program this week. This is really a pattern that we've seen from President Putin through the course of this conflict, which is uh, manufacturing threats that don't exist in order to justify further aggression. And the global community and the American people should look at it through that prism. We've seen him do this time and time again. At no point has Russia been under threat from NATO, has Russia been under threat from Ukraine. This is all a pattern from President Putin. And we're going So it's pretty clear how the U.S. wants its citizens and the rest of the world, frankly, to understand this conflict, right? And she's saying that the U.S. and NATO have done absolutely nothing to provoke Russia. It's pretty wild, I mean, not surprising, but still pretty wild that she would say something like this. A few weeks before the invasion, the U.S. approved a $200 million security package for Ukraine, and Secretary of State Antony Blinken tweeted his support of three NATO allies sending weapons into Ukraine, weapons made by American companies, of course. Over the last year alone, the U.S. has spent over a billion dollars in security assistance to Ukraine. And one week before the invasion, the U.S. approved a $6 billion sale of arms, as billion with a B, which included tanks, explosives, and machine guns to Poland. Consider also the recent expansion of NATO into Romania and the recent construction of a U.S. missile facility in eastern Poland, which, according to the New York Times, blasts the star-spangled banner every morning on loudspeakers. Imagine living in a country and hearing another country's national anthem every single morning. Putin has said that he sees this expansion of NATO as a threat. Last year, Putin said he would draw down his forces from the Ukrainian border if NATO withdrew from countries near the Russian border, and the U.S. did the opposite. 
But here's the important thing. I know some of you are thinking, well, Putin's probably lying. He's making these things up. But even if NATO's increased presence is not a threat, as the U.S. claims, it's completely reasonable that Putin would view it as a threat. So even if Jen Psaki is correct, the impression of a threat is what matters. Now, let's just flip the script for a second. Again, just pretend that Putin, even if Putin's lying, let's just flip the script for a second. Let's imagine that Russia had forces in Canada and Mexico and in Cuba. Let's say that Russia was saying they were there to keep America from expanding its influence. Let's just say every few years, Russia sends more weapons, bombs, tanks, etc. over to Canada and to Mexico. Let's say Russia starts setting up a missile facility near the U.S. border and blasting the Russian national anthem every morning. Wouldn't we, as Americans, feel a little threatened by that? If something appears threatening, it is threatening, or probably is threatening, to the person who says it. Intent doesn't really matter. So Jen Psaki is being completely disingenuous here. NATO has been slowly moving eastward toward Russia over the years. Of course, this does not justify Russia's actions. It's simply the truth. The U.S. is not without fault. But of course, the administration will do what it always does in times of conflict. It's going to push its narrative hard and strong. Of course they'll do that. Russia does the exact same thing. The only difference is that here in the U.S., we're supposed to have a free press that pushes back against the narrative, which they do do from time to time. Russia, on the other hand, there's been an incredible lockdown on information and news outlets are now pulling out of the country because it's now apparently illegal to call this a war or an invasion instead of the Putin-preferred special military operation. I know it's a pretty terrible Russian accent. I apologize. But the thing is that all information that emerges during wartime, no matter where it comes from, is going to be tainted. It's going to be tainted because of the nature of war. War splits us. It unites one side against the other. It completely eliminates nuance. It oversimplifies everything. It consolidates everything into a neat little package. In this case, Russia versus the world. And frankly, while Russia is obviously the aggressor here, I'm a little concerned about how unbalanced the coverage of this war has been. Most journalists are taking a clear side, which might be the right thing to do from a moral perspective. But is it right from a journalism perspective? So how can we, as journalists and as news consumers, make sense of it all? Is it even possible to know the truth about a war when virtually all information is coming with strings attached? and journalists themselves are aligning with one side. That's what I'm going to try to tackle in this episode. I know it's a hell of a task, but I can't think of anything more important right now. So this episode is much like this podcast, generally speaking. This episode's for journalists who are covering the war and all its impacts around the globe, but it's also for regular people who just care about what's happening. And maybe right now it's a good time to take a deep breath. Hold it in. Exhale slow because we're about to get deep. All right, here it is. The eight things we should be thinking about as the war in Ukraine rages on. The first thing and arguably the most important thing we should keep in mind in this war is context. Just like any story being told by journalists, context is king. But for point number one, we're going to talk about the absence of context, what we don't know, and how that could actually matter more than what we do know, at least as it pertains to this war. 
Of course, details of this war absolutely matter, but the number of details and how they interact is incredibly complex and always shifting. I'm willing to bet that only a handful of human beings on the planet actually fully understand the complexity of this war. For that reason, I don't think it's even possible for regular people, or journalists for that matter, to fully understand the context enough. So what then? If we can't know the full context, what do we do? And this next point is critical because it relates to so much of what we report and consume in the news business, and that point is this. We got to admit, we must admit, that it's okay to not know the context. In other words, it's okay to not know something. Wasn't it Socrates who said, the only thing I know is that I know nothing? Isn't that the best definition of wisdom out there? I think we've become obsessed with knowing anything we want to know at any time we want to know it. And that's why so many of us have struggled during the pandemic, because all the information we get changes so fast. We're not used to the truth being so malleable. We think that we read the truth and that's it. But with the pandemic, the truth about the virus changes every week. So what do so many of us do? We throw our hands up and scream, fake news, or we say journalists are liars, or that the government doesn't know what it's doing. The fact is that we are all trying to figure out what's going on. We are in the process of understanding. We don't yet understand, and it's the exact same with any war, and especially this war. And that's okay. It's okay to not understand something. It's okay to learn something and have that new thing change. It's okay to unlearn something. A big part of the problem with journalism is that we don't communicate information the same way we understand science. News stories are packaged as narratives. There are characters and conflict and plot twists and drama, and that's all needed to capture the audience's attention. But science doesn't have a narrative. There are no good guys or bad guys or even neutral guys. It's just theories that are tested, proven or disproven, and tested again. Science is in a constant state of revision. Science is messy. It doesn't look nice. That's why journalists don't present stories the way scientists present facts. It doesn't play well with the audience. War, on the other hand, has everything that makes a great narrative. It's good guys versus bad guys. There are images and sounds that strike us to our core. Emotions run high. But because war makes for a great story, we tend to oversimplify and that process of oversimplification makes it harder for the public to understand the actual complexities, which makes it harder anytime something big happens again. In other words, journalism's obsession with narratives and its avoidance of complexities harms our collective ability to deal with unknowns like war, like a pandemic. So what then? Well, I'd argue that the complexities in a pandemic and the complexities in war don't necessarily need to be understood by all. However, the existence of complexity needs to be understood. It's okay to say, you know, there are things we don't know, and here's a list of those things. Journalists are tempted to not do that because we're trained to only report what we know. But in times of complexity, in times of war, rather than oversimplifying and focusing on what we know— Let's go deeper and reveal what we don't know. That will show the audience that there's more to this story and it will help them avoid falling into the narrow-minded trap where their minds are already made up. To sum up point number one, we cannot know the full context of the war in Ukraine. Practically speaking, it means that we, meaning news consumers, cannot draw vast conclusions based on the stories we see, read, and hear. Instead, let's simply accept that the war is happening, 
and do whatever we feel is best to address the reality of war, whether it's through donations, volunteering, learning more, having discussions, or maybe it's nothing. It's okay to not know something. It's okay to admit you don't know something. We humans love to Google stuff and become instant experts and share our brilliance with the world, but in times of great stress, it can only confuse the situation and lead to tension and possibly more conflict. Another deep breath. And out. That brings us to point number two, which is related to point number one, because it too is also about context, but in this case, it's about the broader context of war and how it exists as other wars also exist. What I mean is the world is full of things happening, and I worry that a lot of the attention on the Ukraine is not necessarily due to it being an important story, which it certainly is, but instead it's because it has nothing to do with the pandemic. We're exhausted by pandemic coverage, so Ukraine offers an oddly welcome reprieve, Perhaps that sounds a bit morbid, and it certainly is, but I can't help but think that some news organizations are probably relieved to be writing about something like war, which again can be easily oversimplified into a simple narrative. Instead of covering the pandemic where the truth is shifting constantly and the winners and losers are unclear or interchangeable. Russia's invasion of the Ukraine is happening as the pandemic rages. That's one part of the context. The other part of the context is the history between Russia and Ukraine, their shared culture and language in eastern Ukraine, the fighting since 2014, and finally, the other context is other conflicts. I mean, let's consider for a second that there are currently at least 59 violent conflicts happening on planet Earth right now as of March 2022. Of those conflicts, there are five happening today that Wikipedia classifies as a major war, meaning there have been 10,000 or more fatalities a year since the wars began. Of those five, three have seen more than 1,000 fatalities in 2022 already. The war in Ukraine is obviously one of those. I wonder if any of you could guess the other two. One of those other two wars, which honestly surprised me, sadly, is the ongoing violence in Myanmar. This year alone, over 3,000 people have been killed from the unrest there. The other major war with the highest death toll this year also surprised me, and it's the crisis in Yemen. This year, between three and 5,000 people have been killed there. Finally, the war in Ethiopia, Sudan, and Eritrea took as many as 19,000 lives last year, and the Afghanistan conflict claimed up to 42,000 lives last year. That doesn't count for the millions of human beings displaced by these wars and all the families forever changed after losing people they loved. The war in Ukraine has the highest death toll for 2022. So far this year, since the Russian invasion, the death toll is around eight to 16,000, and that's on all sides of the war, Russia and Ukraine. The invasion of Ukraine is absolutely a newsworthy event and should be covered closely, no doubt about it. The impact on real families is affecting millions in Eastern Europe and around the globe. The economic sanctions are also being felt globally here in Connecticut. Gas prices went up 50 cents in a week. And the geopolitical changes are gonna be felt for decades. But as we consume news about Ukraine, I hope we don't forget about the hundreds of millions of people who have been displaced by war over the decades. Syrians who risked their lives to flee that never-ending morass, the Oromo in Ethiopia, the Rohingya in Myanmar, the Uyghurs in China, or Palestinians in Israel. Many of these conflicts have been happening for decades with no end in sight. There have been millions upon millions of fatalities and people displaced, including many, many civilians. In short, war is brutal and, apparently, never-ending. Let's also not forget the endless wars that the United States has fought. 
Anthropologist David Vine claims that the U.S. has been engaged in a war or conflict for almost every single year since we became a country. He says there are only 11 years in our 250-year history where we haven't been involved in some violent conflict somewhere on the planet. Or what about the 800 U.S. military bases around the globe? I highly doubt their presence has made Putin sleep well at night. So when Putin says that NATO and the U.S. continue to encroach on Russia— and the U.S. has a long history of invading countries and illegally intervening in foreign elections and sponsoring coups against democratically elected leaders. And Jen Psaki goes on television saying, At no point has Russia been under threat from NATO, has Russia been under threat from Ukraine. Well, it just leaves a bad taste in my mouth. And that's the context I'm talking about here, and that's the context that journalists should always remember. Putin most certainly is an authoritarian, a power-hungry bulldog with rabies, but the only difference between what he's doing in Ukraine and what the U.S. did in Iraq following 9-11 is that Putin's public rationale, it kills me to say this, but Putin's public rationale at least has some logic behind it. Here's the thing, even if Putin's lying, there's rationality in his lie. American officials, on the other hand, used logic to invade Iraq that didn't make sense for anyone with half a brain. If Putin's lying, again, at least his rationale is believable. At least his lie has some logic to it. Is that better in some weird way? But again, war is awful, no matter what. The invasion of Ukraine is completely unjustifiable in all respects. But is what Putin doing worse than the United States invading Iraq under false pretenses? Which led to more instability in the Middle East and led to the creation of ISIS and other extremist groups. That's the context we should be thinking about. <sighs> so, quick recap. Number one thing we should think about when reporting on this war and when consuming information about this war, recognize what we don't know and be okay with not knowing it. Number two, recognize the deeper context of war and other wars and those consequences broadly and historically. The third thing we should be looking out for, or perhaps a better way to say it is what we should be avoiding, is the romanticization of war and its participants. Okay, what do I mean by that? Well, perhaps you've seen the memes of President Zelensky circulating online. There's one where he's dressed up as Captain America from the Marvel Comics style, holding a big shield, and it says, Captain Ukraine underneath. There have been comparisons of him as a Jedi and Putin as Emperor Palpatine from the Star Wars franchise. There's Zelensky t-shirts you can buy on Etsy with quips he's made, like when he turned down an evacuation offer from the U.S. by saying, I need ammunition, not a ride. Kate Nibbs is a senior writer at Wired, and she wrote this about this strange phenomenon. Politicians aren't meant to be idolized, even in their finest hours. There's a difference between admiring a leader's actions and adulating them like a K-pop star. Believing the Russian invasion of Ukraine is an atrocity and that Zelensky is behaving courageously does not mean that it's wise to apply the googly-eyed logic of fandom to his actions. In fact, it's distinctly unwise. Treating Zelensky like a superhero, let's call it marvelization, recasts a geopolitical conflict in which real people are really dying into entertainment, into content. As Russia bombed Kiev, the New York Post published an article about who might play Zelensky in the inevitable film adaptation of the conflict. The consensus, Avengers actor Jeremy Renner. Who does that help exactly? Well, I don't know, Kate. That's a damn good question. In her piece, Kate later quotes Salafa Zadani, an MIT professor specializing in digital culture studies, who said this. What we see in studying memes and politics is that while memification helps a political message or cause spread to many people, it often comes at the expense of a flattening 
of that story. Isn't that the last thing we should be doing? So let's stop romanticizing war and the individuals who fight them. It helps nobody. This is especially true for journalists. It might be tempting to incorporate some of these hero themes into your work, but I beg of you, stick to the facts. This brings us to the fourth thing we should be thinking about as the war unfolds, and that's the always important advice, follow the money. Who stands to make money off what's happening right now? Of course, the stock market's taking a pretty big hit, so hedge funds are probably doing all right, I imagine. With oil prices at their highest level in over a decade, I guess oil companies are probably raking it in, as are OPEC countries. But what is the take exactly? Who is actually making money right now, and how much are they making? Well, let's think about the $200 million in aid we sent to Ukraine only a month before the Russian invasion. How much of that was profit for weapons manufacturers? Well, we don't know. The contents of that aid package don't have to be disclosed, apparently. But here's what we do know about the arms trade. First of all, U.S. companies are the largest exporters of arms to other countries on the planet, bar none, period. The Stockholm International Peace Research Institute estimates that in 2020, U.S. companies made three times as much money as Russia did selling weapons. Russia, of course, being the number two arms dealer on Earth. Between 2016 and 2020, the United States exported 85% more arms than Russia and sold arms to 96 foreign states. The Stockholm Institute is quick to note that aid packages, like the recent one to Ukraine, are not included in these figures because the host country pays the bill. Virtually all of America's weaponry is made in the private sector. In fact, the five largest weapon manufacturers on planet Earth are right here in the good old U.S. of A. And of course, the U.S. government is the top client for all five companies. But Jen Psaki says we've never done anything to threaten Russia. How could Russia be so mad? Hell, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, on February 17th, just a week before Russia invaded Ukraine, the State Department approved the sale of $6 billion of weapons to the government of Poland. The approved weapon sale includes 250 Abrams tanks, counter-IED systems, combat recovery vehicles, a few dozen 50 caliber machine guns, 500 7.62 caliber machine guns, over 13,000 high-explosive anti-tank cartridges, and a host of other explosive devices and machines of war. When the sale goes through, who collects the $9 billion? Well, the following for-profit companies, of course. General Dynamics Land Systems, BAE Systems, Leonardo DRS, Honeywell Aerospace, Raytheon Company, and Lockheed Martin. Remember in the beginning of the episode how Russia was worried about the new missile facility in Poland not far from Russia's border? But wait, what did Jen Psaki say again? At no point has Russia been under threat from NATO. One more thing about this. And this could be its own point, but I'll include it here. I would absolutely love for American journalists to stop using the phrase American-made weapons. America does not make weapons. For-profit corporations make weapons in America. Take, for example, the Javelin missile, which is used by Ukraine against Russian tanks. It's not an American-made Javelin missile, as the New York Times called it in a March 5 story. No, it's a Lockheed Martin Raytheon-made missile. By calling it American-made, you make it sound like American taxpayers reap the profits from its sale. Even worse, you obscure the reality of weapons manufacturing and make it seem like a solely patriotic endeavor when it's a pure profit operation that American taxpayers pay. For-profit companies make missiles, and they make money by selling them to the United States government and to other governments. Even if the U.S. is giving weapons to a country for free as part of an aid package, as it did with its $200 million Ukraine package, the U.S. is still 
paying for them. We, the citizens, are paying for them. Raytheon isn't giving away javelins. Come on. So let's just stop saying American-made when it comes to weapons, can't we? Can we just say who really makes them? By the way, if you want to know about approved arms deals, which again are approved sales packages, which must be done transparently, as opposed to approved aid packages, which apparently can be done in secret, information on approved arms deals can be found at the Defense Security Cooperation Agency's website, which is dsca.mil. So let's keep an eye out for the war profiteers. Weapons manufacturers, oil companies, hedge funds, who's profiting and how are they profiting, and what is the accountability mechanism, if any, to fight this? Deep breath in. (sighs) So this brings us to number five on the list, and maybe it's also the reason why most news outlets haven't said much about the Poland arms deal, and the ones that did don't seem to care too much about what Putin had to say about it. Maybe that's because journalists are taking a side and essentially becoming de facto nationalists. So the fifth thing we should be doing as reporters and news consumers is doing our absolute best, especially for journalists, to avoid becoming de facto nationalists. This is a really easy trap to fall into. When it came to reporting on the Poland arms deal or the Ukrainian aid package, journalists knew, or at least we thought we knew, what Putin would say about it. Let's take Newsweek's coverage of the Poland deal, which again happened a week before the Russian invasion. Newsweek was probably the biggest media company to cover the deal, and yet they only quoted U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin from a press conference. The reporter didn't have to reach out to Putin or to a Russian spokesperson. They could have simply gotten information from any of the thousands of stories out there where Putin complains about NATO's buildup of arms. In fact, that was one of Putin's demands. He wanted NATO to remove any troops or weapons deployed to countries that entered the alliance after 97 which includes Poland. That demand, along with seven others, was sent to the U.S. in December of 2021. But two months later, the U.S. approved this $6 billion weapon sale to Poland. But what did Jen Psaki say? I'm just kidding. I won't play that clip again. But can I? Just one more time. Pretty please. At no point has Russia been under threat from NATO. Okay, okay, you get the picture. I'm joking here, but in reality, it's really scary that we're being told this by our government's spokesperson. Now, of course, she can be a nationalist, and her job is to spread American propaganda. But I wish just for once that people in government would just be a little honest about their mistakes and about our contributions to things falling apart. Journalists aren't helping either. Again, in that coverage of the arms deal, Putin's take wasn't included. It's not hard to find out what he thinks. Hell, he demanded NATO remove troops and weapons in December, and then two months later, the U.S. approved a huge arms deal. Couldn't that information at least have been included in reporting on the arms deal? I don't want to beat up on Newsweek because I get it. Most outlets that covered it didn't mention Putin's demands. It was simply framed as a U.S. attempt to prepare for a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Nobody stopped to think that maybe this sale was the final straw for Putin. I actually doubt that's the case, as Putin has a million problems, and some invented and some not, and this is just one of them. But the fact that American news outlets aren't even asking the question. Just ask a foreign policy expert, how might Russia interpret this arms deal, and what impact might it have on their decision to escalate tensions? Simple question, right? Then, after the invasion, follow up with that person and ask, did that arms deal have anything to do with Russia's decision to eventually invade? Even if the answer is no, we have to ask the question. We do the truth a disservice when we avoid going deeper, especially about stories related to human lives being lost, just because we think we already know the answer. Journalists have a special obligation to ask the hard questions in times of war. We can't hide behind our flag and worry that we'll be seen as unpatriotic because we dug into a Putin claim and found out there was some truth there. 
In short, most American journalists have already made up their minds about Putin. Public figures like Marco Rubio and General H.R. McMaster are even questioning Putin's mental stability, and journalists report those sentiments without a second thought. Putin's painted as losing his marbles, and his soldiers are painted as morons who don't know what they're doing. So the narrative about Russia and Putin being evil and insane is simply reinforced because we assume intent and we assume maliciousness. Rather than simply asking the questions, rather than pushing back against non-doctors making mental health diagnoses, we assume the answers. We become blinded by our own patriotism and the truth suffers. So let's ask the questions we think we know the answers to. Maybe we'll be surprised. Now, the sixth thing, and this one's going to be tough, but absolutely critical, what else is happening in the world? Significant world events often become shields used by powerful entities to make decisions in the dark. Think about all the stories over the last two years that didn't get covered at all because so many journalists were focused on the pandemic. Well, you'll never know what those stories were because they were completely missed, but I guarantee you big stories flew under the radar. Or think about all the stories that unfolded during the pandemic, but went almost completely under the radar. The locust plague in the Horn of Africa that was the worst in 60 years and ruined farmlands and the livelihoods of millions. Or what about the largest protest in human history, which happened in India at the end of 2020? Farmers there were protesting a new law that they said threatened their way of life. Or what about hurricanes Eta and Iota that left over half a million people displaced in Central America? This was the first recorded instance of two Category 4 storms striking within 15 miles of each other within a two-week period. Or what about the release of the Pandora Papers last October? This was a massive bombshell. It was the single largest data leak exposing financial secrecy in the history of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. In total, 35 current and former national leaders appear within the 2.9 terabytes of data, alongside 400 public officials from nearly 100 countries and more than 100 billionaires and 14 financial service companies. And guess whose name was in the Pandora Papers? Captain Ukraine himself, President Zelensky. The papers showed that Zelensky, who is a former actor who played the president on TV, by the way, the Pandora Papers showed that Zelensky has engaged in some of the shady business practices that we usually associate with the Russian oligarchy. But that story also flew under the radar, because at the time the Pandora Papers came out, we were too worried about the Omicron variant of the coronavirus, or the building up of tensions on the Russian border. I hate to say that people ignored Zelensky's connection to the Pandora Papers because of this escalation with Russia, but who knows. What other stories are we missing out on? Now we have the coronavirus pandemic and the invasion of Ukraine owning headlines. Important stories, to be sure, but what else are we missing? Are important public decisions being made but going unnoticed? Are there settlements being reached in important precedent-setting cases that might change the future of our country or perhaps the planet? What's happening on the Supreme Court, which is set to hear cases that could unravel decades of precedent? Let's keep an eye on congressional committee meeting agendas and local public meetings and public hearings. Let's keep a close watch on state and federal court dockets. Let's check in with grassroots groups to see how their fights are going. Let's not let important stories fall into the abyss. As journalists, we should make an extra effort to find the underreported stories and push them hard on our editors. As news consumers, we should engage with a variety of stories as much as possible and essentially hack our personalized algorithms so that they feed us a healthy, balanced diet, not just meat and potatoes. Let's get some vegetables, maybe some dessert on there. Now, on to number seven on my list, and this one's sure to ruffle some feathers, no doubt, but I think it has to be said. 
It's time for the public to demand and for journalists to come through on a deep dive into the concept of militarization, how it manifests itself in policing, in entertainment, and in sports, but more importantly, how militarization is practiced by governments today. That was a mouthful. Let me try to break it down. We take for granted that governments need a thriving military to protect and defend interests of the state. I don't disagree. But when I hear stories about Russian soldiers not even knowing they were going to invade Ukraine or confusing the invasion with a training mission, even if those stories are Western propaganda, it still highlights an aspect of militarization that needs deeper scrutiny, which is this. Militaries are organized to have an absolute and irrefutable division of power. In other words, orders are obeyed, period. Orders cannot be questioned because during war, decisions must be quick and they must be decisive. If discussions and disagreements ensued, lives could be lost, wars could be lost. So to a point, absolute obedience is important, to a point. But soldiers, from an enlistees to NCOs and on up the chain, should have some say when it comes to an invasion. If the Geneva Convention were ever to be revised, it would be amazing to see a commitment by leading nations to allow soldiers to opt out of war, especially an invasion, for any reason. Now, many soldiers might not have access to a free press, and now that's a different story. They may simply feel in their gut that an invasion is wrong, and they should be able to opt out penalty-free. Or even better, why don't we make it a requirement that 90% of our soldiers need to be on board with an invasion before it can be greenlit? Hell, at least the leading democracies should be doing this, no? Isn't that what a democracy is all about? People ruling people? Why do democratic principles completely disintegrate in the military, which, ironically enough, is where the vast majority of our spending goes? Yes, the world's most important democracy, the U.S. of A., spends $600 billion a year on defense, an industry governed almost completely autocratically. Now, in the heat of battle, there's no need for discussion. Obey the order. But maybe we wouldn't get into unnecessary battles if the decision to enter was actually democratic. So that's one prong of point number seven. The other prong is this. Militarization is fetishized in entertainment and is replicated by police departments. Why do we fetishize the military? Why do we immediately assume a veteran's a hero just because she served? What if she's suffering from severe PTSD because she committed or witnessed an atrocity? And you call her a hero. Why do we do this? Why do American police departments look like special military operations? Now, admittedly, these last two points are a little bit of a digression, but I think it's worth mentioning as we watch and report on the war in Ukraine. How we write about the war today will influence how we think about military might and the use of force going forward. How we phrase things matters. How we contextualize things matters. If we don't think about the implications of our phrasing and our language, and we simply report as we always have, we risk further glamorization of militarism, of violence. And we risk militarism becoming an even stronger presence in our daily lives. Eventually, we may come to accept the fact that all schools will have armed security guards or that cameras will be on every street corner and in every store connected to the internet and plugged into by the NSA and the FBI and, oh, crap, we're already in that world. Whoops. To sum up point number seven, let's think critically about our understanding of militarism, how it's structured, and how it seeps into society in various ways, and how we communicate these impacts through our journalism and reporting on war. Which brings me to my final piece of advice for those of us covering or following the war in Ukraine, which is number eight. That's this. Let's pay close attention to the human element. 
Now, I do think that news outlets are pretty good at this. Good journalists know how to talk to people in stressful situations and how to get them to tell their stories. While that skill is commendable, it can also be a little dangerous. Interviewing a person whose country is being ravaged by war requires a special level of sensitivity. It also requires a powerful BS detector. Someone who has experienced PTSD risks revisiting that trauma when asked by a reporter to talk about it. And they also might invent a story, or they might leave out important details as a coping mechanism. A good reporter should know how to talk to people who have experienced trauma, and how to fact-check claims made by people who have experienced trauma. Or maybe a better way to look at it is to fact-check claims made by people who say they have experienced trauma. The DART Center for Journalism and Trauma is an incredible resource for journalists interested in learning more about this. That's D-A-R-T Center. It's at Columbia University. But it's also more than interviewing sensitively and fact-checking deeply. It's about humanity. Here's something that happened recently that didn't sit well with me, and coverage of it also bothered me. There were a couple of Russian soldiers captured that Ukraine put on display in a press conference, which seems to me to be a clear violation of the Geneva Convention, which states that governments are supposed to protect a prisoner of war from being made into a, quote, public curiosity. And that's exactly what Ukraine did. They turned those Russian soldiers into propaganda tools. But not much was discussed about that maltreatment. No, more attention was paid to the Russian soldiers talking about how ignorant they were of the actual invasion, or how they didn't know they were going to invade, and how Putin's a bad leader, how some of them thought it was a training mission, etc., etc. Did we ever stop to think that maybe Ukraine forced them to say these things? Are we at least asking that question? We can do better than that as journalists and as governments. Again, it's about humanity. These are human beings doing what they were told to do by a leader of the country, which they no doubt love. It's quite a predicament. And again, a good reason for us to explore more deeply the broader impacts of militarization and organized armies. It's about human beings, people. War is the worst of it, and wars are raging all over the world, and people are causing it, and people are the biggest victims. I think journalists would go a long way toward regaining trust by remembering that they, too, are human beings. Journalists are people. Whenever I teach journalism class, that's something I always try to hammer home. Be a human being first and a journalist second. Don't get so caught up with finding the big story that you forget your own humanity. I remember I was working on a story about a man who was killed by a commuter train in Darien, Connecticut. It seemed like a suicide, but none of the details added up. He had said he had several kids. He was successful. He was an active member of the community. He, he was killed by a through train early on a Monday morning in March when it was still dark out. And I actually, I actually wrote about the experience I had while reporting on the story. To this day, it's still one of the best things I've ever written because my experience was just it was so unexpected and emotional. Here's a little bit of it, which I think captures what I'm talking about when I say we should be human beings first and reporters second. I walked across the parking lot as the incident train passed. It was dark out, cold. Not bitter cold, but just below comfortable. I had parked my car in a lot across the street from the train station. As I opened my door, I heard it. Metal on metal, screeching, rumbling sound of a 100-ton Metro North train barreling past the Norton Heights train station at 6.26 in the morning. That was the train, I thought. Not my train, but the train. A chill ran down my spine. It felt colder. I thought of his family and their immense pain. I thought of the passengers on that train. I thought of the engineer sitting in the front when it happened. 
Did he see it? Did he see anything at all? Did anybody see anything? Earlier that morning, I had woken up and couldn't fall back to sleep. Something was nagging at me to get to the train station. No witnesses had come forward. Maybe I could find someone if I go down today, I thought. It had happened last Monday, a week ago exactly. Maybe some people only take the train on Monday. Maybe I'll find someone. I looked toward the platform and saw about five or six people milling about. An older man, tall with a thick gray beard, saw me looking at him. He hustled by before I could even tell him why I was there. I took a breath. There are more people to talk to, I told myself. I looked over and saw a young woman standing and waiting. I approached her. Hi, I'm David DeRoche with the Darien Times newspaper. I'm wondering, were you here last Monday? Did you happen to see anything? The woman looks me square in the eye. I'm his daughter. Words escaped me. How could I not have expected this? Did I really think that his family would not be down here seeking closure for themselves? Was I that unaware, that clueless? Completely unprepared, I lost all sense of my profession. I was no longer a reporter. I was a fellow human being. Is there anything I can do to help, I said. She wanted help finding witnesses. That's why she was there, trying to see if anyone had seen anything. In a haphazard way, I asked her if she wanted to be quoted, knowing she'd refuse, which she did, politely. I gave her my card. Please let me know if there's anything we can do to help, I said, no matter what. She took my card, and she thanked me. She thanked me. Perhaps never in my life have I ever felt so undeserved of thanks. I felt guilty for being thanked. I felt like a fraud. I couldn't take her pain away. I couldn't make things better. But quickly I remembered why she was thanking me, because I was there. I was there for the same reason she was, looking for witnesses, seeking an answer, hoping to find closure. I asked a few other middle-aged men if they'd seen anything and nothing. Then I saw a young woman. I began to introduce myself, but I immediately noticed the family resemblance. She's also his daughter. She's carrying a laminated photo of who I can only assume is her dad. She thanked me too. I'm again torn in my emotional response. I, I shouldn't be here, I thought. I'm not helping. What's the point? The MTA police are here. That's good enough, right? I'm just in the way. I'm just a reminder of what happened. I'm just a media vulture. Why am I being thanked? The platform quickly began to fill up. The train would be arriving any second. I approached another man, nothing, and another nothing. I saw a young man standing next to Kevin's daughter, and it's his son. Stupidly, I approached him as if he might have seen something. He thanked me. In a matter of seconds, the number of people on the platform doubled, tripled. I needed to find someone. Three more men, nothing. The arriving train blasts its horn. I start to gently shout. Did anyone see anything last Monday? Anyone? Anything? I stared everyone I could in the eye until I saw their eyes. But people seemed ashamed not to know anything. They wanted so badly to know what happened, but they just didn't know. They hung their heads low as I called out in desperation. The train stops. The doors open. People wander in. The hope of finding a witness disappears into a cacophony of cell phone chatter, newspaper rattling, and topical banter. Inside the train, people sleep, read news on paper or screen, talk to each other. The train closes its doors and rumbles on. A conductor stares out from one of the doors. He seems to know what's been going on outside. A thunderous roar blows past as the caboose chugs by. normally loud for a commuter train, announcing its departure with a, a robustness that felt orchestrated. 
It was as if someone had put an insensitive period at the end of a fragmented sentence of what could have been the truth. The platform is now empty, save Kevin's children, myself, two MTA police officers who appear weary. Any sense of optimism they had departed hastily toward New York City. They'd been coming here every morning over the last week, and nothing. I attempt to leave and see Kevin's son and daughter. I stop to see if they had any luck, and they ask me the same. Nothing. I can't think of anything more to say. But they say something. They ask if there's anything they can do to help me. Here are people at the height of pain and frustration and confusion and 10,000 unnamed emotions asking me if they can help me. My heart felt like a million pounds. So that's what I'm talking about when I talk about being a human being first. I don't think it threatens your ability to remain objectively distant. You can still be a human and maintain distance, but maybe the line we're told we shouldn't cross is a little closer to our emotional core. Maybe if we weren't so obsessed with objectivity and distance, we could connect with people on a deeper level. And then when it's time to go on record, you would have their trust. When we're on the job, everything a journalist hears is considered on the record, unless we state otherwise. But not everyone knows that. Isn't it much better to get to know people on a human level before using their story? Otherwise, if you're story first, don't you risk exploiting their vulnerability? Isn't minimizing harm one of the main ethical tenets of being a journalist? Yes. Yes, it is. Well, there you have it, humans. That was our first episode of season two, the eight things we should be thinking about as the war in Ukraine rages on. Deep breath in and out. (sighs) By the way, if you go to our webpage, quinnipiacpodcasts.com, scroll down to Baffled with David Roche. If you go there, you can read blogs related to this episode. You can comment. You can check out all the references that I use for this episode. All the links are there, and there are a lot, so please check them out. Please also get in touch with us. Tell us what you think about the podcast and let us know if you have any ideas for an episode. We're trying to talk about journalism and where it went wrong and maybe what it's doing right. And also we're trying to help news consumers better understand the reporting process. So let us know. You can find me on Twitter at SavingEJ or you can email me at david.deroche at qu.edu. That's david.desrochees at qu.edu. you have a few minutes please leave us a review on apple podcasts spotify google podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and please don't forget to subscribe you can catch our new episodes as soon as they come out baffled with david DeRoche is a production of the quinnipiac university podcast studio that music you're hearing is composed and performed by yours truly our social media coordinator is jillian catalano and our video guy is jake mccarthy thanks for listening and i hope you heard <laughs>